If you watched the first three episodes of the series, we left off with the clade Metazoa, formerly known as Kingdom Animalia. So you might expect that this video will move on to our phylum, but modern systematic phylogenetics is quite a bit more complex than the old practice of Linnaean taxonomy. Because the closer you look at something, the more detail you see, and the more you know about anything, the more complex it always turns out to be. And Carolus Linnaeus conceived these seven ranks in the 1700s, but seven is not enough, not by a long shot. In the last video, you saw that there were at least a half a dozen more clades just in our linear progression between the domain and kingdom levels. Likewise, there's another few clades between the kingdom and phylum. Now, this video will only cover one of them, one of those clades, the origin of all animals. And I'll explain how our lineage is associated with sister groups, because there's important information there. If we take every animal in the world into account, putting everything extant or extinct in their appropriate categories, how would we determine the most basic divisions between all of them? This means finding one group that is fundamentally different structurally or reproductively from all the rest. This most basic of all divisions should also indicate the earliest division and thus the oldest of all animals. Of course, the earliest animals would be the simplest, with no skeletons or organs or complex features. There are plenty of animals like that. The phylogeny explorer shows the simplest ones together in the basal clade Parazoa, consisting of sponges and placozoans. This is a group which do not have layers of clearly defined tissues. The sister clade is Eumetazoa, which refers to all animals that are more complex or more advanced than sponges. We could just as easily call this clade Epitheliozoa, and some do, because all of the more advanced animals do have epithelia. And as we mentioned in the last video, the choanocytes and sponges could become epithelial cells in more advanced animals. Placozoans have epithelia too, and are sometimes classed as eumetazoans because of that. Uh, some sponges can have that too. In fact, taxonomists have classed both sponges and placozoans together as diploblasts. But placozoans have only one tissue, while sponges have none at all, and eumetazoans are at least diploblastic, meaning they have at least two different tissue layers that are clearly defined. Placozoans have the smallest genome of any animal. While they may be morphologically a single species, genetically they show that they have a great deal of diversity, but they still have the smallest genome. And phylogenetic analysis of different parts of that genome tend to indicate an affinity with epithelial eumetazoans, but analysis of the entire genome has them basal to both eumetazoans and sponges. They've been traditionally classified as parazoans, meaning beside animals, implying that parazoans are not true animals. In light of new molecular data, that seems appropriate, especially since placozoans don't even have an internal digestive cavity and therefore don't meet the minimum criteria to be a true animal. And placozoans have much more primitive morphology than any other animal. Although they are multicellular, they look more like amorphous amoebae with no defined shape other than that of a vague disc. They either move by changing shape the way an amoeba does, or they crawl on cilia just like unicellular organisms do. Now, placozoans can also reproduce sexually or asexually by either binary fission or even budding. So again, they behave more like multicellular protists than actual animals. Neither placozoans nor sponges have a nervous system either. In fact, as you might expect of the earliest multicellular organisms, the cells of sponges are neither networked nor specialized the way cells of more advanced animals are. 
Sponge cells are uniquely free as individuals, but once divided from the whole, they will recombine to form new sponges, where every cell can adapt to build whatever structures or perform whatever tasks are necessary. Consequently, some have argued that sponges are more like communal organisms than actual animals. And today there are over 9,000 species of sponges in both aquatic and marine environments all over the world. They also left some of the earliest animal fossils ever found, some more than 600 million years old, going back to the very beginning of the Ediacaran, the final period of the Proterozoic era. So every developmental stage we're talking about now is pre-Cambrian, just like every stage where clay mentioned up to this point of the series. You guys, this is pre-Cambrian rock. Pre-Cambrian. Pre-Cambrian. That means that this is the oldest life form on the planet. I mean, other than, you know, one cell thing. So if parazoans are beside the animals, then eumetazoa are the true animals. And that's the clade we're talking about today. Of course, we didn't evolve from sponges, but from something even simpler than that. One of the laws of evolution is that the young of two closely related species are more similar to each other than the adults are, and this implies character traits of their most recent common ancestor. So the earliest animals weren't actually sponges, not the adult forms we recognize as sponges anyway. They were more like the larval stage of sponges, which are also very like the next group of the world's simplest animals. Just like placozoans and unicellular protists, sponge larvae move with cilia. At this stage, it's hard not to see the similarity with comb jellies, another close relative that swims with cilia. And take the swimming cilia away, and it looks a bit like a jellyfish. Then the larval sponge finds a bit of rock onto which to secure itself, and at that moment, it looks a lot like an anemone. And then the cilia that helped it swim become the coanocytes that help it feed, and it turns back into what we would expect a sponge to look like. These are more than just superficial similarities. They're closely related. The most significant difference between them is that cnidarians have cells that have specialized into a network of nerves connected to muscles. This enables them to react to their environment. Some of them can even swim when they have to. The clade that has been traditionally but sometimes inappropriately called radiata implies a radial symmetry from the middle outward. This clade could also be called coelenterata, referring to an open digestive cavity. Either way, it includes some very simple animals, like tenophores, better known as comb jellies. Even though they are true animals, they have no organs at all and are little more than hollow tubes made of, apparently, jelly. Radiata also includes the extinct trilobozoa. These are based on a triradial symmetry. We don't know much else about them because they're extinct, known only from the Ediacaran period. It's funny that most people seem to think that all life forms appeared in the Cambrian explosion, yet these pre-Cambrian organisms were already extinct before that next period even began. Radiata is best known for cnidarians, jellyfish, anemones, and corals. And scientists have identified a few developmental alterations that could change an anemone into a significantly different organism by extending the mouth and growing arm-like feeding structures while reducing the tentacles to thin strands. Then with the cylindrical stalk no longer anchored to anything, it changed shape, becoming the gelatinous bell of a jellyfish. So a jellyfish is essentially an inverted anemone. There is some uncertainty when trying to classify these organisms only by their morphology. Genomic analysis can confirm or correct our understanding, but it can also conceal some of the very evolutionary pathways we're trying to discern. So this is where we evoke a third method. 
the study of evolutionary development, colloquially known as evo-devo, in addition to comparative genomics and morphology as a means of determining phylogeny. 19th century naturalist Ernst Haeckel suggested that ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, meaning that a developing embryo changes through the adult phases of its entire evolutionary ancestry as it forms. This was disproved a hundred years ago. We don't become fish, then amphibians, then reptiles, and so on, as he suggested. But otherwise, there really is a correlation between patterns of evolutionary and embryological development. These are sagittal sections of basal metazoans shown with their mouths pointed up. This hypothetical model was drawn by a developmental biologist friend of mine to better explain early metazoan evolution. I'll include the link below. But in summary, he explained how the last common ancestor of all animals, A, would have had very few specializations, but it would have had cells set aside for digestion in blue, others that formed an outer protective layer in white, and an inner mass containing gametes in orange and muscle in pink and light green. This basal metazoan also has flagella shown with thin black lines, adhesive structures, these the thick black spikes, gametogonia in orange, and primordial myocytes, light green and light red. What he describes here is not too dissimilar from placozoans and sponge larvae. So if figure A represents parazoans, then figure B represents the clade commonly known as radiata. This could be derived from parazoans by the invagination of a digestive area to create a pouch-like gut. From that point, morphology alone permits two possibilities, but I'm going to go with a cladogram composed by a combination of all available data, including morphology, developmental biology, mitochondrial genome, and other whole genome comparisons. And this concatenated data mix indicates one maximum likelihood. So we'll follow that and say that figure B, radiata, led to both tenophores and cnidarians without going through a bilateral phase first. Figure D, the tenophore ancestor, was derived from B by forming a massive extracellular matrix wherein myocytes mostly differentiate into smooth muscle type, shown in green. However, locomotion is still generated by specialized flagella in the complates. Figures E and F both derived directly from B, developing both smooth and striated muscle. This enabled them to react to their environment and also to swim. But our ancestors stem from figures C and G, in which an invaginated gut like that of figure B extended all the way through to the other side, allowing a mouth at one end and an anus in the rear. And prior to that, our ancestors may have been like polyps on the seafloor, something like a hydra perhaps. But this front-to-back polarity would have required an entirely different and necessarily mobile lifestyle, forcing a significant revision of the body plan. From that point, the generic contractile tissue differentiated into smooth and striated muscle, and this zootype represents the crown or origin of bilateria, a clade of bilaterally symmetrical animals that is otherwise much too complicated to get into now, so we will talk more about that clade in the next video.
So jellyfish are essentially an inverted amoeba. An amoeba. Inverted. An 